This is SEMO, where we help you see more. Hi, welcome back to the SEMO podcast. In this episode, we speak to Serena Gwen. Serena is the founder and CEO of Suitcase Magazine, a publication that crosses both print and online and aims to bring a fresh approach to the role of the travel magazine. She's also on the committee of UNICEF's Next Generation London and set up hashtag Cook for Syria in 2016 to aid Syrian children. What began as a one dinner turned into hundreds of restaurants offering a Syrian twist to their signature dishes, a best-selling cookbook and more than £750,000 in proceeds for the Syrian crisis. I really enjoyed this episode with Serena and we really get to learn about her entrepreneurial journey and some of the fantastic philanthropy projects that she's been working on. So we're here with the lovely Serena Gwen. Welcome on the SEMO podcast. It's so great to have you on. Um, I think when I was kind of getting you on the show, I was like, oh my God, you know, the whole podcast is around seeing more. And ultimately what you do at Suitcase is seeing more by traveling the world and sharing those stories with people. Yes, I, I guess it is. And I, I think it's quite fitting that we met in New Zealand all those years I know. ago. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> I know, a bit different. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have we, known? I think we met in St. Patrick's Day in a pub. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fun. A lot of yeah. green face paint, a lot of uh, pints of Guinness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but it's fantastic to have you on. Um, and we're going to talk about your journey with Suitcase Magazine and, and how that started. And also the amazing work you're doing with UNICEF Next Gen and the Cook for Syria um, project that you have also been driving. But just to lighten the mood and a bit of icebreakers first. Um, yeah, we'll start with some icebreakers. So, writing or taking pictures? Writing. Autumn or spring? Summer. <laughs> no, spring, yeah, so spring. I was gonna do I was gonna do winter <laughs> and summer, but that's like everyone does that. So I, throw, I thought I'd throw you a curveball. Spring. Spring, yeah. Okay, so room, desk, and car. Which do you clean first? Well, I don't really drive very often, so <laughs> room, definitely. Room. room, yeah. Okay. London or New York? London to live and then New York to visit. You have two teleportation devices. Where do you place them and why? So where would you place teleportation device A, teleportation device B? Ooh. I guess you want somewhere hot and cold, no? I don't know, you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think one teleportation device would definitely be on a beach somewhere. I think the Philippines is probably the most beautiful place I've ever been to, so I wouldn't mind it being on one of the islands there. I really liked El Nido. And then the other one... I love the mountains, so somewhere in Switzerland, I think. A skiing or a summer mountain destination? Well, I get to choose. Like, oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so you I can go any time. <laughs> <laughs> um, favorite cocktail? Negroni. Negroni. And lastly, a fun fact about you. Um, I used to teach surfing in the summers. That is a fun fact. Yeah. And your Instagram is full of surfing photos. Yeah. <laughs> so you're obviously keeping that up. I know. I was, I, I was actually inspired by Blue Crush, the movie. Really? Which, really? <laughs> it's still my favorite movie. Cool. So um, just, just to start, um, give us kind of the overview or concept of Suitcase Magazine. Um, so Suitcase is a travel media company for an experience-driven uh, generation of travelers. We started back in... 2012 when I was actually at university I was studying at NYU at the time and really um, was the first time I needed to rely on other travel outlets to navigate the cities that I was living in and I just thought they were really badly curated um, that the information wasn't well researched and it was just quite ugly <laughs> a lot of the websites so I had to do so much work in order to just find like a cool restaurant somewhere to go um, and I also thought it wasn't targeted at me, it was targeted at a backpacker or a, like a businessman, basically. So I wanted, uh, because I did so much work <laughs> doing, <laughs> doing all that research, I started creating guides for my friends. And then 
um, they started really liking them. And so I decided that it'd be cool to turn it into some kind of business. So started suitcase. Um, when we started, we actually had a, just a coarsely print magazine and like a very basic website because the aim was to make a statement about curation. And then now, because uh, we have a bit more budget, <laughs> we can uh, do that through the, our website a lot more. And um, our website's growing quicker than ever, uh, although the print is too. And, and tell me a bit more about the statement of creation. What, what was that? So I think it was just really featuring places that people might want to go to. So I think, okay, so there's two different aspects of curation. I think one is the, the destinations in themselves. So a lot of uh, travel magazines, the traditional ones, were a bit scared of featuring um, like secondary cities or places that were a little bit off the beaten track. But that's really what we want now because, you know, a lot of travels become more accessible. So we've been to places like, you know, Paris and New York before and like what's what's next? Uh, and then the second thing is within those destinations. So a lot of our readers are young professionals. So we do a lot of city guides because they're going away for the weekends. Um, it's really finding the best of local life. Uh, so it's very experience driven. So that could be a, a one pound Michelin noodle bar <laughs> like they have in Singapore, or it could be, um, you know, Massimo Bottura's restaurant in Bologna. Like, I haven't eaten there, so I can't say if it's suitcase certified or not yet. But um, <laughs> do you have, um, a, do you have really a suitcase a golden mix. stamp? Like yeah. <laughs> soon <laughs> yeah good. yeah okay and um where did the name come from how did you come up with that name um so I guess a suitcase is something that you always bring with you on your travels um, and when we first started we actually had a stronger connection to fashion um I wanted to make travel creative and um, because the coolest people I know were working in the creative industries so what do you put in your suitcase you put clothes uh, we used to do a lot of shoots on location and that's actually I think how I managed to bring in a lot more um, readers is by featuring high profile designers or people going to the shows like, just imagine who'd be in the front row of a fashion show and that's the kind of person that we'd want to profile in suitcase yeah and uh, tell me a little bit about the journey old school Serena um, what were you doing at school um, you know, what we're doing at university, what's been your journey and, and how come, you know, was travel always an inspiration for you? Um, so I was always a goody goody at school. <laughs> really? <laughs> it's really annoying. <laughs> um, I was like one of those, I, I think I was one of those students that got really worked up about exams, e even when I was we one of those students when they're like, okay, now you have to find a, um, a project partner and you're like, no, I want to do it myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, and then, and then actually it, it kind of, it all fell apart a little bit when I went to co-ed school <laughs> my last two years. And I, I stopped being straight A and I was like A slash B student. Um, and then, and then um, that kind of ruined my dreams for going to Oxford a little bit, um, which was what I was kind of conditioned to think that was the only route to success at school. So when I didn't get in, I thought that was the end of it and I wouldn't have a successful career. I had like a... I was going to say a midlife crisis, but that's not quite midlife. <laughs> An 18-year-old crisis um, thinking, I just put way too much pressure on myself. And then luckily my father had made me apply to American universities as well. And so um, I had got into this amazing program at NYU like shortly after getting rejected from Oxford where I could spend two years abroad and two years in New York. And that just sounded so cool and it wasn't like anything that I'd heard of. And so I just went for that. And um, I think living in New York really changed my perspective on things because people there are just so driven. Like everyone has a side hustle. Like everyone in my class had a fashion brand or doing this really cool internship somewhere. They're really passionate about things. And so um, I guess I started thinking more about what I wanted to do and it made me feel like starting a magazine really wasn't such a big deal. So that, it gave me the confidence to do it. That, that's great then. So kind of experiencing different cultures and, and being at... Know, New York University, yeah, the hustle and bustle of, of the city is infectious. So I can imagine like just being inspired by kind of your, your colleagues. Can you name, was there any re really cool side hustle that, that stood out? Um, I'm trying to think. 
not that I can think of. I, I know that everyone in my year is doing really interesting things. Like one of the one of my really good friends went to work at the White House, not for this <laughs> administration, <laughs> um, in a really senior position. And then another friend of mine is called Lauren Singer, and she has a big. She started a huge zero waste movement, and she's got an Instagram called Trashes for Tossers and a store in New York. And so um, I guess it's just following through with these passions and actually making them something really big and exciting. Awesome. So. So you're at NYU, you're inspired, you decide, right, I'm going to do a side hustle. So what were those initial steps? Like, how, did you know that it wanted to be travel-oriented? Oriented? Orientated? <laughs> um, you know, you said that you were frustrated because there wasn't really anything for you and, and you were starting to create these city guides. So so you, what was those initial steps into kind of developing this spark of an idea? Um, I suppose... Uh, actually, the thing that really made me think I need to do it is... I want to do it as a business was uh, when one of my friends who knew I was writing these travel guides uh, texted me saying, oh, I've got this really cool guide. I need to send it to you. I think it was for Paris or something. I was like, oh, I really want to see it. Um, send it to me. And then she sent me back my guide. No way. Like, yeah. Okay. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> was like a bit Obviously of self-gratification. Yeah, yeah. um, and so the fact that my friends were using my guide versus another no, friends of friends were using my guide, not just even people that I knew, um, made me think, okay, I want to try and start something. So then um, I didn't really know anyone in the industry, so it was all about... I'd met a couple of people during internships. Um, there was one lady called Lynette Nylander, uh, who's now living in New York, and she's had a really interesting career. But anyway, I called her up and said, hey, like, who prints your magazine, who distributes it, and she just gave me the names. Um, and then I also emailed Anna Harvey, who's a VP of Conde Nast, just cold emailed her, say, telling her what I was doing. Um, and she she actually responded to me and gave me some advice and told me I could use her as a reference for a couple of things, which was just incredible. <laughs> it doesn't really get much better than that. And then um, from there, just a lot of Googling. A lot of Googling, a lot of research. Yeah. But like at that time, you didn't have budget to kind of fly yourself to far-flung paces. So no, what was, it was, the, just what was kind of the initial... Um, was so, it just kind of doing more of like the hometown? Uh, no, kind so of... I guess the initial ones were places that... I suppose I travelled a bit anyway, because I love travelling. Um, so whenever it was school holiday, <laughs> go, or like university holiday. Um, and then I, I met quite a few friends. When I was at university, NYU is very international. Um, friends from all over the place and NYU is also very creative um, so just met people through friends or friends of friends who contributed to the first issue which yeah it doesn't quite look like and, <laughs> what the issues and, and do was now, the first but... issue was it quite um, was it was it essentially just like um, a load of design PDFs that you put together or was it properly printed um, it was no, no, it was printed. Yeah. It was printed. And was that bootstrapped in the sense, did you, did you raise money, did you crowdfund it, did you just get some... So I got, I took print? out a director's loan to print the first few issues and to do a launch party at Shoreditch House. Great. Did you come to that? Uh, I'm not sure, maybe. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, hopefully you came to that. <laughs> anyway, we, I, I knew that there was one thing to have a product, but there's another thing to to let people know that it existed. So we really need to market it. Yeah. I obviously didn't have a budget really to do that. So before I even did a launch party, I got 50 of my friends to put suitcases, their cover photo on Great. Facebook and that with a link to our website or to, I think to our Facebook page. So we had 15,000 likes on Facebook before we launched. So Amazing. we had a community already that yeah. were excited and ready for when we launched to go, buy, go out and buy the magazine. And then we did the Shoreditch House event and got just made sure there was so much money behind the bar and then invited <laughs> so many journalists and then it worked and then <laughs> within six months I was on the evening standard 25 under 25 most influential Londoner list and we got a lot of press that then generated a lot of um, interest and we had some really great people come on board um, to help us to you know with design or whatever it was um, editorial to make it better that's awesome and I mean, it seems as a common thread for you in terms of, you know, initially emailing Anna Harvey to emailing journalists and getting mm -hmm. them down. So that's, that's pretty cool. You know, I think with anyone, you know, they have an idea and it can be quite daunting and it's like, oh, you know, no one's going to, 
you know take it seriously or whatever but that's just proof in the pudding that you know you you just did cold email people so either you're like a shit hot copywriter or (laughs) um you know that's it's just great that 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 kind of happened you know without that arguably maybe there wasn't such a great kind of initial success yeah I think um I think I probably wrote I think I wrote quite concise emails I took time to compose so they definitely would hit home they were personalized to each person rather than sending out a blanket email um but I'm also really grateful to the people that emailed me back because even like I'm definitely not the same level as all the people like Anna Harvey at Conley Nast was when I emailed her but even now I get a lot of people emailing me asking um for help for their student projects and things and now I I sometimes get really busy and I'm like oh I don't have time but then I just remember how much of a difference that made um so I try and like take time once or twice a week to do that nice what do you enjoy most about being an entrepreneur and what's the hardest about it uh I definitely enjoy meeting um other entrepreneurs I think that's definitely one of the top things like meeting you um like even the people I was on the panel with the events that you've organized before like I met the founder of all birds you know the trainers a few months ago just really inspiring to hear their stories and I can most entrepreneurs have a certain kind of like energy and drive and it just kind of keeps you on track and like it makes me it feel it makes me feel inspired to keep doing what I'm doing um I also love inspiring people to, to actually travel and to make them feel safe enough to try a new destination or somewhere that's like a little bit out of the norm for them and then struggles are (laughs) multiple (laughs) like tenfold I think um I think one of the hardest experiences for me was fundraising yeah uh, which I did last year I think it was just because I was really naive about it I think you know, no matter how amazing your company is, it is a difficult mm. thing because you have to take time out from doing what you're doing day to day. I'm not yeah. a numbers person. Like, I love growing the business, but I'm I, I'm much more of a creative. I love traveling, being out there, meeting people. And this was just taking time away from that. And then you also, for me, I also just thought all these investors were the kind of, I knew them, but I, I didn't actually know that many yeah. investors. So it was a lot of time building relationships a lot of the time the people that hold the key to things aren't necessarily your target audience or just uh, like I don't different generation different gender different mm. whatever so they don't necessarily get it and so you have to be really tough and to stand by your idea and yeah. know when someone just isn't getting it it's, but it's nothing to do with you you can't take it personally mm. so it's a lot of soul searching <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's pretty good I mean how many years since you launched Suitcase to only be fundraising now? Uh, it's been it's almost seven years. That's fantastic. Seven, seven years old, yeah. So you kind of yeah. rode that wave initially. So that's what I was going to say, going back to you had this big event um, at Shoreditch House as a launch, mm-hmm. um, a lot of excitement. And then what was the next months after that? Was it like, right, we need to now, we've got kind of people that obviously kind of validated the idea they're really excited about it now was it like shit I need to hire a team or what were the next stages Actually, to then a, growing yeah, the brand there was a little bit of a dip because um then it launched and it got loads of press and we did about three issues and um I wasn't really sure about the direction it was going in because I just, I just really wasn't sure about the direction that the print was going in and things and I was also doing my last year of university and so it was just got so much. Yeah, so, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> so we actually um, ended up pausing for about three issues. So from January until September the following year, which everyone told me I was crazy to do. But we kept on with the social media channels, kept our website. And that was enough, honestly, to keep relations, keep building the brands. And it meant I didn't need to kill myself producing yeah. a magazine as well. And that helped, I guess, because you'd positioned it, was it as a as a, a quarterly magazine? Yeah, it was quarterly. Yeah, so I guess having that time, I mean... Yes, yeah, so it wasn't as kind bad of, as You could cover up the dip yeah. rather than having it... <laughs> there's supposed to be 12 issues on my desk, where are they? <laughs> we didn't have subscriptions and things yet, yeah. so it was, it was a bit easier. Uh, but it was. A more, I think it was... I went with my gut instinct rather than listening to what everyone else was saying, and it was totally the right thing to do at that time. Because I thought I'm not... I could either drop out of university to do this... 
or I could, but I knew that I would never go back. Yeah. It's quite hard to get in the mindset. Especially last year, you might as well just kind yeah, of. Yeah, so I was like, I just might just as well. One last hurdle, exactly. And then... So, and then a couple of my team came out to New York to help me because it was quite hard doing long distance work, not yeah. <laughs> our relationship. <laughs> and I'm getting up at like five to Skype the office because it'd be 10 already in London. Yeah. Do some work and then go into classes because at American University, you have to go to class every day. Then do my homework, then do some more suitcase. I've just lived on coffee, so unhealthy. And you mentioned that, you know, obviously there's a certain kind of energy that entrepreneurs have and, you know, I completely agree, but, but kind of to have that, I mean, to be juggling a business and doing a final year um, and getting up early and doing those things, I mean, does that come from anywhere or is it just kind of the natural fire yeah, inside you? Yeah, it actually come. I think genetically a few people in my family like that my grandma's definitely like that she uh runs well for years she ran a consignment boutique uh in washington and then at age actually i'm not gonna tell you i'm not allowed at age 29 she said she's 29 um <laughs> she started a um she did a psychology phd so PsyD, um and now works at walter reed hospital part-time which is the one the biggest military hospital mm. in america wow yeah so she's and she's got her shop still so it's crazy and then my dad also um is just i've never known someone to go to australia for one day for work and he just <laughs> works so hard <laughs> um and so driven yeah so definitely both inspirational figures for me um and so i think it would still be a relevant question today in terms of looking at the publishing industry and mm-hmm. kind of print magazine i mean now i'd say and and perhaps back in 2012 the same but so the question is like you know now you're starting to see a lot of independent magazines but there was kind of this 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 point and and maybe still is it's like what you're you're creating a print magazine you must be crazy in in the world now you know with where it's the rise of digital and why do a print magazine if it's kind of declining as an industry so was that kind of a uh, kind of a, a, a crazy thing that people were were yelling at you or yeah i mean people were yelling at me but then i I guess First, you have, first thing to look at the stats, the magazine industry in general, like the revenue is still pretty much the same. It has been for the past few years. Yes, people are spending a bit more on digital than on print, but print sales haven't gone away. Um, and then, yeah, there's been a renaissance of independent magazines. I think what we are seeing and what we are noticing are all these big kind of heritage titles going under... And that's because I think they were so big and so heavy and so many, they had so many staff that they just couldn't turn them around in time. So there's definitely a place where print, I mean, even Facebook launched a print magazine or newspaper. I don't really, know what you yeah. call it, like a yeah. bookazine or... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you're seeing a lot of, um, yeah, lot of kind a lot of, of startup designs and things of, like that. Exactly. And so there, there is a place for print, but it's just... Um, changed a little bit so it's print needs to be more of an experience it needs to feature more long format reads things you can't find easily online it's not like all of us just want to be on our phone the whole time like we get quite sick of our screens so it's nice to have a different experience and the same with book sales like book sales have increased so much yeah i'd say suitcase is somewhere between a book and a magazine because all the content we produce is timeless so you could read an issue from two years ago and wouldn't be out of date because it's a travel story that's really nice and I was going to say, um, why is now the time for your company to exist? Um, I think because, oh, so many different reasons. Um, so I think suitcase needs to still exist because there's still a huge gap in the market for experiential travel and for a, a go-to source for that. So yes, you've got TripAdvisor, yes, you've got all these things, but you don't know who's behind the scenes on those. Uh, and then there is another gap that we're trying to fill now, which is also when it comes to planning your trip. Because, yes, we are inspirational. And I think that's great. And we're, we're getting quite good at doing that. But obviously, we can still get better. But um, we want to focus a lot more on the practical as- aspects. So once you know where you're going, so say you're going to Berlin for the weekend, like we need to provide enough information that you feel comfortable just stay on our website. So like hotel, restaurants, things to do. Um, and then to build your own guide to that place. Because at the moment, the average person goes on 37 different websites before booking. Wow, really? Trip, which is not efficient and <laughs> yeah. 
our readers are mainly young professionals and that they're time poor. <laughs> but I would say as well, I think, um, you know, there are, there are lots of different kind of travel websites or guides or things, but I just think in terms of kind of the look and the feel of suitcase, but also mm-hmm. the editorial way in which that you're, you really do put yourselves in the mind of that kind of young traveler and wanting to find places off the beaten path and then kind of sharing those experiences in an editorial way rather than like, you know, kind of a drop down menu of places or like, you know, just putting zero to five stars on it and stuff. I think it's such a more, I don't know, human way to, mm. to talk about travel. And I would think as well, like whether it's obviously imagery is universal yeah. and, and kind of language and travel, uh, you know, there are some people that don't like it, but I think generally now you said, earlier that obviously travel cost wise is a lot more accessible to people but yeah I mean I guess so much more people are wanting to do that and you're seeing a lot of stats and surveys that people are it's more experience led rather than material things as well they're not buying cars they're not buying apartments or homes so they've got a lot more money to travel yeah what unseen opportunities did you see that may result in making your startup a huge success what opportunities did I see when I first started or now? Both. Like along the way, I guess you have an initial idea, but you can't think of everything. So what were some of the unseen opportunities oh, that kind of came at you that were like, oh, wow, you know, this, we're onto this and we're actually delivering on it and, and therefore, you know, this is going to be a success? Um, I think the, the most... I think when I first started I suppose the opportunity was pretty obvious that there was a big gap in the market for something that was more experience led and then as we developed I guess we just learned more what that actually meant about creating something that was a bit more authentic so we used to feature for example a lot of um, fashion shoots on our covers and I liked it because it was very creative and it showcased places in a different way but then we actually found that people couldn't People didn't like the images that much when we were posting them on Instagram compared to all the other images that we were posting, like of destinations, people and stuff. And then we actually realized it was because they just couldn't relate to it. So it was just too far removed from what they actually wanted to, to read or see on our platform. So we um, stopped doing so many fashion shoots and um, then we just focused more on cool experiences and different destinations and just doing that really, really well. And that's made a huge difference. It's also opened up our audience a lot to men. Because um, before we were very gender, we were very female-oriented. Because 80% of the travel research is done by women. But I don't know if that stat is true anymore. Because we have 60% female readership and 40% male readership. And then the, the next opportunity that I've really started seeing in, in the past year or so is this practical aspect. So once you know where you want to go... How can we help you plan your trip in, an, in a way that's elegant and not like in your face and too robotic um, and just to make people feel like very comfortable um, planning everything with us. And what, what would that look like? Is that an app? Is it um, I think, a, like yeah, a bespoke first, kind of um, map router? Yeah, I think or? first it'll be just making our website really easy to navigate. So we're reading our website at the moment. It's going to launch later this year, um, hopefully in August, September. Uh, and first, just making our web website really easy to navigate. So if you know where you want to go, you can find that place really easy. I know it sounds basic, but <laughs> no, I mean, it's, yeah. search is so difficult. Um, and then once we see how people are using it a bit more, then look at creating an app. But I don't want to just create an app first and not cater to something yeah. that people actually really want. Yeah. And how important is collaboration to you and the business? Oh, very important. Actually... I try and meet as many founders and editors of magazines as possible um, or media companies to start with. A lot of people think that's quite weird, but I think it's really important to share challenges, um, especially if we're we're up against... There's like a growing independent market of media outlets and they're up against Connie Nast and Hearst. So how can we band together to become stronger, whether that's... You know, buying paper together. We're talking to a magazine at the moment about sharing an ad salesperson. So just sharing costs and things that make things 
a lot better, like more of the back end stuff. And then also just kind of discussing trends, like advertising and things, seeing like what worked, what didn't work. And it's really nice to have that community now. I can just email and ask any question. So that's great from from you as a, a business founder yeah. um, and doing the collaboration. But then I guess in terms of how does the content work? Do you have oh, a set team or do you... Do you have like, do you collaborate with creators or those types of traveling people that kind of, um, uh, kind of help curate content for the, for the mag- yeah, magazine so online? I think print? the most important thing is all of our content is, uh, created through a local lens. So we don't use the traditional magazine, travel magazine format of having writers in house and then sending them everywhere because that I feel like wouldn't give you an authentic view of a place like if you go to Amsterdam for four days are you really going to know Amsterdam (laughs) can you really write a good city guide Uh, so we actually for our city guides we interview uh, locals and then we write it up in house because the coolest like the person who's going to know all the best nightclubs is definitely not going to be the best writer yeah (laughs) well not like maybe if we're really lucky but in general not not. (laughs) Um, and then we will send our in-house team and like we've got a huge bank of freelance contributors, photographers, writers, videographers, whatever um, kind of content creation you can think of. And then uh, we will send them uh, to look at hotels and things for us as well and to capture the different places. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think in terms of having an authentic voice, um, yeah, the best way is to obviously kind of have that knowledge coming from the people on the ground and, and that yeah. kind of contextually and locally relevant content, you know, they're going to know the best spots and kind of, even if you're planning your night as little as, or as simple as, you know, you, you, between this 7 to 8 p.m. window, go to this bar and then go to for dinner here and yeah, then go exactly. to this late night bar. So I think that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, we're definitely looking at doing itineraries and things like that just to make it more and more granular and practical but in like a fun, easy to use way. Yeah, and in terms of Okay, you have the magazine and you have the website. Mm-hmm. Do you do a series of events? Do you do kind of do you meet your community? Yeah, so we do events probably once every couple of months. I can't say they're my favorite thing. <laughs> it was great when you're there, but the production is uh, the st- so yeah, much effort. Yeah. Uh, it's worth it usually in the end. Uh, but it, it's really great. We've done a few more reader events recently. Um, before we before that, we've done pop ups as well. We've done about six pop ups. And that's awesome to have people coming in, interacting with the magazine, telling us like what they love about it and seeing what our readers look like in real life. Uh, I think that that's really great. And I, I actually, we've also done influencer type events too, um, which are a little bit harder to produce. Yeah. <laughs> but again, because I've been but to then, one of your yeah. pop-ups and I, you know, again, going to that notion of curation, it's not just a load of suitcase magazines on the wall. You actually curate a lot of other kind of travel inspired brands to, to, to kind of partner on yes exactly so like we did a, a like one-stop shop for summer before we actually for our second ever pop-up we did a we did a, a magazine only pop-up where we did floor to ceiling uh maybe we put magazines on all the walls ceiling everywhere and that actually got a lot of press so it was just a fun stunt yeah so that you need to decide if you're going to make money or just do a cool publicity stunt for your pop-up shops yeah and what is i mean uh, you just mentioned in terms of collaboration with the other com- competitors but what is a competitive landscape were you kind of the, the first type of magazine in this space are there some more copycat brands now and, and how do you kind of ensure that you're always achieving cut through um so i think when we we pop when we started it was like a few other travel magazines that popped up around the same time probably about four and i think the competitive landscape now I I don't spend too much time worrying about it because it's just no point. <laughs> uh, but I just keep an eye on what they're doing and just try and do whatever we're doing better. I think if we keep following our mission, we are a little bit... We're definitely faster than some of the heritage brands because we see them copying us after. Like, we'll do a newsletter in the next week. They'll do a newsletter with exactly the same subject. <laughs> uh, so there's definitely some um, something going on there. But I think as long as we're first and we... We're not about um, also news, travel news, so that makes it easier. We're about curation, mm. so it's pretty hard to replicate that. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of success, how do you measure success? What are your metrics? Um, so personally, 
success is um, I've actually realized it's about enjoying the journey and making sure that I'm happy day to day because I think I really realized that last year when I was actually fundraising because as I said it was such it was a very difficult time a very challenging time and I just hate it was like all the aspects of my job that I really don't enjoy and um, obviously that was that was necessary because we wanted to build a new website and it was for a short period of time so it was fine um, but it really made me realize that I want to come in to work and do things that I love every day because there isn't some end goal, you know, okay, maybe I'll sell a suitcase one day and maybe make some money. But then what? It's not like I'm suddenly going to be a really happy person only at that point in time. Uh, so I think that realization took a lot of pressure off and also allowed me to be more present and realize it actually made me realize what my strengths are inside my team and so now I'm more focused on creative uh, problem solving uh, and yeah I suppose like more on the creative management side of things Uh, obviously looking at numbers and stuff but not spending all my time doing that Uh, and as long as I'm doing that I'm super happy and then for suitcase haven't decided what success looks like yet I think um I'm very proud of my team and what they've achieved so far I think come a long way (laughs) since we started and um I think I think we'll know that we we've done an amazing job when that's the first thing that people think of when they're traveling we're young professionals that we're targeting when they want to go somewhere that they come to us first so in terms of your role so you were founder and editor-in-chief, mm-hmm. and then you had a transition into being founder and CEO. Why the change, and, and how was that for you, that change? Uh, so I I can't remember when I did that. I think it was like four years ago now or something like that, that I changed from editor-in-chief to CEO. I think uh, it was a reflection of how the business was growing at the time. So we'd grown quite a lot, so we needed someone to take a bit more oversight into like business development advertising where the business was going as whole brand vision and I couldn't just look, focus on content alone it was too limiting uh, and then also I had someone in my team uh, who was just who was a really talented editor and she was senior editor and she was basically she was doing a better job than me at like organizing the magazine writing everything so it just made a lot of sense at that time to promote her and give her a platform to do what she does best and then for me to like move aside and do learn basically not do what I, I had to learn a lot to become well, that's great and I think that's, <laughs> that's what I always say is like you know hire people that are smarter than you or hire you know people that um, can do the job better than you and then ultimately you know you do what you're great at but understanding kind of you know what skill sets you have and respecting the team and providing that platform that's quite a fresh breath of hair to hear that mm. that's really nice um what is the growth strategy now for for suitcase so i think our main focus is making our website as good as it can be so that's so the kind of the next kind of that's um, our goal next that you're goal. working on yeah, yeah so we're at the moment we're designing it which is really fun yeah um and we're looking at all kinds of websites not just media websites to do that and then um because I think that our website, well, social media is often our first port of call for people. Um, and then our website and then print magazine. It's kind of the journey. Once they buy into the brand, then they want to have the print magazine on their coffee table and makes them feel part of the community. Yeah. So based on the success of Suitcase Magazine, you've now set up Suitcase Media. Mm-hmm. So what is that offering about? And why did you decide to create this new entity? Suitcase Media is a content and brand agency uh, for intrepid travel and lifestyle brands so it's it's about um helping brands tell their stories better and i started it because we started doing bits and pieces of content uh, for different brands um off the back of doing advertising partnerships with them and they liked what we did for them and they said oh can you produce like this article for us or do a shoot for us or just small bits and pieces and then um, we never really formalized things until uh, January 2017, where two big hotel groups at the same time said that they wanted us to come in and help with like their positioning and content and basically a lot of different things. 
And so at that point, it's all, it makes sense. Like the industry is obviously changing a little bit. Like people, brands are spending a little less on advertising traditional ways, but they want to own their own channels and they, but they have no idea how to do it because it's not like they have a whole editorial team in house and, but their customers are expecting this massive content strategy and cool newsletter and all this stuff. So we come in to help do that. And, um, we've worked with some cool brands, uh, from citizen M hotels to Belmont hotels, um, Hunter, Wellington boots. And then we're working on a few projects that I can't say yet. That's exciting. <laughs> I'm under that's... contract. Yeah. <laughs> that's super exciting. So, and like, yeah. it just shows obviously you have such kind of a fantastic, um, visual identity with suitcase that then to have brands saying, actually, we want a bit more of this for our own channels and things like that. Then that's... Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's a quite a nice way to, to keep plugged into the travel industry and like lifestyle industries. Cause we, do a lot of research onto these into these companies and then it helps inform our content strategy for suitcase and yeah cool so i want to move on now to unicef next gen mm-hmm. so you're an ambassador here in london um could you tell me how you got involved what's your role and, and what is that all about um so i'm I, i'm actually i'm not an ambassador i'm a, on the committee uh was that worse or so, good? <laughs> Better. Um, Actually, I'm on the yet. committee. Because no. <laughs> uh, like David Beckham's an ambassador for oh, USF. Well, yeah. <laughs> we won't edit that out. We'll yeah. keep that in. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I joined the committee as soon as it was set up. I think I was like the, one of the first committee members. And uh, the idea was to make... Because uh, UNICEF is one of the best charities for children in the world it has the most impact anywhere because it, it's only it's in every country except for two um and and there's i think one of them's monaco and like somewhere else which really don't need a unicef yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and so the idea was to make fundraising for charity something that was more accessible for young professionals uh, so that meant doing more, uh, like raising more awareness, and then also doing like more engaging, cooler, younger events, like screenings of documentaries or having talks or just um, things that are a bit more personal and relatable rather than just big auction dinners. And uh, then a couple of years ago, started a campaign called Cook for Syria, where I wanted to. I co-founded it with a food blogger. I keep calling him a food blogger, a food Instagrammer. Sorry, Clark and Wild Boy, <laughs> uh, and Gemma Bell, who's a big food PR who looks after all the best restaurants in London. And uh, the idea was to bring together people over Syrian food because food doesn't have any borders. Everyone loves food, and um, Syrian food happens to be really, really good. So originally we were going to just do a big dinner and we had lots of famous chefs like sign on really quickly like Angela Hartnett and Ottolenghi and then um, other chefs started hearing about it so then we thought oh my god we need to do more than just this dinner and uh, what can we do so then we got them we had I think for our first launch we had about 150 restaurants in London put a special Syrian inspired dish on the menu so actually the chefs went away and thought about what ingredients to use and things and then money would go from that to UNICEF. And then um, we'd always ask for that recipe. And then we just ended up with all these recipes from all these amazing restaurants and chefs and things. And we're like, oh, what are we going to do with them? So we're like, oh, we, why don't we just make a cookbook? And I was like, I've done a magazine before. How hard can it be? <laughs> <laughs> and so we put together the cook, first cookbook in a month and a half. Wow. Which was a bit, yeah, <laughs> a bit crazy. Um, and we had some incredible photographers who did all the photography for us and designer, everything was done pro bono. So the maximum amount of money could go to UNICEF. And then that just, we launched that just before Christmas and that really took off and became a number one best-selling cookbook. And then the year after, um, a baker called Lily Vanilli, who's very well known in London, uh, came on board and did a big, big sell in, in the Columbia road where they have the flower market normally. And then, um, launched a second cookbook off the back of that called bake for syria so that's still on on sale now and we've raised uh over seven hundred fifty thousand pounds wow that's amazing that's such an inspiring story um but tell me how so they had the unicef next gen when you got involved with that did they kind of have a normal program of events and then 
with your kind of entrepreneurial hat on, you were like, mm, I want to do something a bit more outside the box. And, and kind of how did that idea for Cook for Syria develop? Well, actually, because... So everyone in the committee is supposed to do a certain amount of events a year and supposed to raise a certain amount of money per year. And I hadn't done anything... I hadn't filled my quota for that year, so I was feeling the pressure because it was summertime. <laughs> I was like, oh no, I haven't done anything. And this is someone that wants to be an A-grade student at yeah, all times. <laughs> so I was like, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to do a tiny dinner. And then it just spirals from there because <laughs> I just don't ever do anything half-heartedly. But uh, did you, had you met Imad, the chef, or how so did that then, idea so, come around? So had, you had the idea or was, did, was it a meeting with uh, Imad, the chef, that then kind of led to the Cook for Syria book? How did that... No, so I... So as soon as I... Um, Clark, my boy, and I and Gemma came up... Clark, whatever. When, as soon as all of us had come up with the idea, um, I said that we really needed someone who was Syrian to be an advisor for the project. Because I didn't... Like, even though the food is Syrian-inspired, not actually Syrian, I didn't want to, to do something that was stupid. Uh, so, but also it's adding that layer of authenticity on yeah, top. Yeah, and so I asked around and um, got introduced to Imad, who at the time was a used car salesman, um, but he had three restaurants in Damascus originally. Which wow, so he was actually... Um, yeah, so he was a chef before yeah. and had quite a few, like very popular, like in a juice bar and then a couple of restaurants. So he fled Syria and, and Yeah, so he England. fled, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so I spoke to him on the phone, was like the first encounter for about two hours because he wants to tell me everything about Syrian cuisine. And then he was just so friendly. He said, oh, why don't you come to my house? And then I was like, I don't know this man. <laughs> Maybe I'll bring a friend. So I brought my friend with me. And then uh, he, he was like, we met his whole family and he was so welcoming and made the most amazing food. And then um, he told my friend that he, his dream was to, to open a restaurant again. So um, we were like, okay, we need to think about how we can help do that. So we managed to, to um, convince someone to give him, like a, find him a space, a sponsor space. But then he did everything else. He did all, like all the menus, all the food, everything. Um, and that was that's separate to cook for Syria, but I'm really glad that he's now got Imad's got his own catering company called Imad Syrian Kitchen. He just had wow. a falafel uh, pop up uh, in Soho that was just sold out every single day. Yeah, so I was seeing, so I was looking, uh, yeah. I was doing research for the show, like Imad Syrian Kitchen. His Instagram is now twelve thousand followers on Instagram. Yeah, and. There's like a photo of him just with the signs. I think the pop-up had closed and there's a photo with kind of handwritten signs saying, oh my God, thank you so much. You know, this is great success. We'll be back soon. And the comments on Instagram, I mean, people were going <laughs> crazy for this falafel. Like, it is honestly the best falafel I've ever had. You, you have to try it. But it just shows, I mean, there's so many people behind it and then that's such like a, you know, a fantastic story in terms of kind of providing Imad that platform. And, and, and so was that, that was separate then to cook for... So he obviously advised on the book, but yeah, then so he, he his Imad Syrian Kitchen was kind of then a separate... Yeah, and like we definitely... It wasn't... That definitely wasn't a charity thing. Like he did everything himself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely recommend his platform. So good. <laughs> <laughs> Life-changing. And so what... Is there any more stuff happening with that? Are you going to do another cookbook or is that kind of... Um, I think... It, so the way we created Cook for Syria was it kind of open source so that anyone uh, who wanted to could host their own supper club or set it up in their city so we've had Cook for Syria's pop up in like I think six different cities around the world as far as Sydney and Melbourne which were two the, that was probably the second most popular Cook for Syria wow. unbelievably uh, so now uh, we haven't got any events planned at the moment that I know of but people are still buying the cookbooks and people are still hosting supper clubs. We did um, bake sales in school. We did uh, assembly packs even for schools uh, so they could talk to the children about the crisis in Syria. It's it really amazing to see like all kinds of people get involved. Yeah. Um, even the five-year-olds to 65-year-olds. We had a little kid um, even donate his pocket money on our, on wow. our Just Giving page. <laughs> and I think also as well that's such a... I don't know, more engaging rather than just donating money, which is obviously fantastic. But I think to do something that's quite tangible and engaging and actually something around yeah. cooking that and is so universal. Like that you said. I wanted to humanize it a little bit because the crisis had become so faceless. Like we were just reading about these huge numbers, like millions of people being affected or becoming refugees. And you, I just, no one can picture those numbers. And if you haven't been to the region, then it just, 
like there's no way that you can understand the damage so I thought it'd be nice to appeal to a positive aspect of the culture and to also try and preserve it a bit because it's been so disrupted and um yeah and now it's incredible to see that a lot of these Syrian ingredients are still on recipe it became really popular like people expecting like they knew what Lebne was they knew what Zatar was now so they they saw on a menu and they wanted to order it so often they'll go to restaurants and still see similar things so it's almost like an an education as well to people to learn about new food yeah and a lot of um, I actually learnt that a lot of Lebanese restaurants in London are actually Syrian but they just never marketed themselves as Syrian because no one knew what that food was and so they would never go there Wow. Yeah, so I hope that they can say they're Syrian now. <laughs> well, that's pretty awesome. I think I'll do a little, uh, little clap here in the studio. <laughs> um, so what's next then? So what gets you up in the morning? Um, you know, what are you excited about? I mean, we, we talked about kind of the development of, of Suitcase 2.0, but is there more stuff that you're doing with uh, UNICEF Next Gen? Um, what, what kind of big goals are you working towards on the horizon? Uh, I yeah definitely our website is probably the the most exciting thing that I'm working on with suitcase at the moment that I can talk about yeah <laughs> everything else I've like signed my the life woman away. of mystery yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but I'd love I'm feeling very um upset by the environmental crisis at the moment yeah so I really like to do something later this year for for that I don't know what that form that will take um i'm trying to say later this year because i have the tendency to to take on too many things really (laughs) (laughs) so i want to get the website launched first and then and then see what i can do and how about you i mean obviously very excitable aspirational want to do lots of things but how do you keep sane do you follow a certain morning routine or a daily schedule to maximize productivity and well-being um so i don't have like a a routine um I have things I do in a week I guess so um I uh, since two years I've started doing Pilates which is so amazing I can't tell you how great that, that has been for me because I think they well, say, she's actually they just sat sitting, up in a chair now I'm like <laughs> oh say, I have oh, been slouching sitting is the new smoking and right. you just like lose all your like your back hurts and everything so from sitting at a desk all day um, I only do it twice a week, but that is enough. Um, and that's been incredible. I also sleep now. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it wasn't really like... you. I, I never saw examples of successful people sleeping until Ariana Huffington came along and wrote her book. And that was really life-changing for me. So I, I actually need quite a lot of sleep. I need about eight hours a night. Uh, what else am I doing? I try... I make sure that I do things I enjoy outside of work because before because I'm so passionate about what I do it's very easy for me to just do suitcase but then that's not the best thing for the company because I'm just kind of get a bit tunnel visioned and I'm not seeing what's going on so make sure that I read a bit during the week um and then also like go and do something active so like I don't mean sport (laughs) I mean like go and see an exhibition or um movie just really basic things I never made time for before and I think it's not about having a strict routine every single day because I, I won't be able to adhere to that and I'll just throw it out the window. But just having a few like smaller achievable things that I can do in a week to just make me feel a bit calmer and like happier, uh, like reading or doing Pilates and just having... I actually schedule those things into my diary and then non-negotiable, you can't move them. So what yeah. would you say are your, your golden hours during the day? Definitely not early in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think we actually start the work day at 10 yeah. at suitcase, which a lot of people think is very late, but it allows people to go to the gym. And also I think that most companies that start early, like people don't do so that much. So is it much. 10 till 6? Or... Yeah, it's 10 till 6. Yeah. Obviously, if we've got early birds, they start early yeah. if they want to, and then they can leave a bit early. I don't really mind. Um, but clients think not doing anything before 10, really. Um, then, yeah, I think for me, first thing in the morning, so maybe like 10 till 12, and then I get really hangry, so don't plan any <laughs> meetings with me around then. Yeah, and then um, maybe like late to two till three thirty or something like that. Yeah. But then I I can do other things, but I'll do my I'll do my most difficult things always in the morning, um, and then maybe just after lunch. But then after that, otherwise it needs to be like mechanical, <laughs> like yeah. emails or I don't know, making a proposal or something. 
Do you think um, with kind of work pressures and things, um, millennials in general are burning out? Oh, 100%. I definitely felt like that last year. I was really burning out and I just didn't really, I didn't know what's going on because I could see everyone around me doing the same things as me. Um, but I just didn't have the energy. And I think it was my, my mum would always be like, what are you kidding? Like, obviously you're tired. You've worked so hard for six, almost seven years, maybe seven years. Cause I was before launching even Yeah. like, obviously you're tired. You need to make sure that you like find time to sleep or whatever. So now, um, I think last year, I was quite strict, like harsh on myself, so I wouldn't let myself go, like go have a nap or do something. But now, if I'm tired, like maybe I'll go home and have a nap. Even yeah, I mean I don't do that that often. Yeah, <laughs> but if I'm really tired, like I'll end the work day a bit earlier, and then I'll just go in a bit earlier the next day, and that's just so much more productive. Um, rather than trying to, I think burning out usually happens when you just put too much pressure on yourself yeah. to to exceed, to like do really well in your career and. I don't know. You have to remove that pressure. I I realized that the only person doing that was me. Yeah. I was comparing myself to companies that were unicorns, and there's only like a hundred of those. So. Yeah. <laughs> I, there's there's so many other companies that are really good businesses and things that I that you can have different. I, I don't think comparing yourself to to any, anyone is very healthy. Yeah. And blocking out that time for yourself, you mentioned earlier, is that you literally put it in your calendar and and. This is your time. And yeah, so I don't do that for reading. Like, I don't do that like, for do reading. Not, yeah, do I don't. Need, I I have that for my Pilates, and it's before work, so just twice a week. So that's achievable. Um, and then if I have something else during the week, like even if I need to go see a doctor, or whatever, I and like also with my team, I make sure that they don't they don't that if it's important that they make sure they go in. <laughs> yeah, well, that, well, that's the thing, and I think at the end of the day, you know, everyone is human, and yeah. by providing um that type of whether it's flexible working or kind of a workspace where it's like yeah we get it you know go to doctors go to gym or whatever obviously you obviously do 10 till 6 yeah, i think it's so it's so important and you know you're, you're starting to see a lot more you know businesses kind of respecting that i think i love the idea of like a four-day work week or a four-hour work week but then realistically you that i don't know i don't think i can do everything in that time yeah well, it's good to have balance <laughs> yeah <laughs> So I'm going to ask you this question now. Mm -hmm. You might not know the answer. Okay. Because you have obviously traveled to so many places, but do you know how many countries you visited? Um, I don't know, actually. 60, maybe? 60? Yeah. Good, good, good whole number. Yeah. And where's next on your travel list? Um, so next, like I'm going in two weeks to Lake Como to check out a new hotel called Sereno Hotel, which is really beautiful. And then I'm really excited in April, I'm going to do a road trip around Texas. Oh, wow. Which I've That'd always wanted to do, yeah. Lots of Texas barbecue. Yeah, exactly. So did you kind <laughs> of give arts. up a lot of your travel um, commitments when you left the editor-in-chief role to Sierra? Yeah. 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 Also, when I got a boyfriend. That was, oh. <laughs> that was grounding, <laughs> literally. No, I think... Um, no, he doesn't. He definitely doesn't limit me. But I think it would be difficult if you're just traveling around the world with people. Realistic, but I think the Instagram boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> God. Um, I I definitely travel a lot less, but that's because yeah. Again, I had to like look at my strengths and like where I'm most useful, and I, it is useful for me to travel. A because I, I love it, and B I do need to see the world and know what's going on. Um, but then I I kind of need to split my time half and half. I think one thing I experimented with recently was um, going, working abroad. So I went to Switzerland and I um, would work for, I did a kind of four hour work, I did a bit longer, like five or six hours. So I'd like work in the morning, ski, and then work in the evening. Because I just read the Patagonia book, right. Let My People Go Surfing. I was like, I want to try this. And how and did it, it go? Yeah. So my team knew when I was online, yeah. we could schedule calls and things. They're like, oh God, she's skiing now, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had about a hundred meetings when I came back. Yeah. <laughs> they were backlogged. But <laughs> and how long did you do that for? Just a week. Just, Just a week. week. Yeah, because yeah, you're but starting I mean, to see, I mean, I, I, think was, I can't remember the name of the website, like Digital Nomads. Yes. And it like so rates good. places yeah. based on yeah. kind of internet speed. or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I just thought that was so 
like awesome because yeah, I, like I would love cost. to do that yeah because i think most things you can do with a laptop and a phone i think there is a value in meeting people face to face though yeah and what would you say as we're in london right now what mm-hmm. is your favorite london spot at the um, moment i love the restaurant luca that's one of my favorites where's that it's in clarkenwell Oh, nice. Um, so it's the same guys who set up Clove Club, which is on the top yeah. 50 restaurant list. Um, but this is, uh, it's not Michelin star, but it's such good food and pretty well priced for what it is. It's a Michelin like the best uh, Italian and like best of British. They're very fresh produce. The staff are really great. Often one of the owners is like walking around. He'll recognize you if you go back. Like, I don't know. I love it there. Amazing. I have to check it out. And we're wrapping up now. How mm-hmm. can people find you, the social channels, if they want to get in touch? Um, so suitcase very easy it's just at suitcase on instagram um, and our website suitcasemag.com and then um, if you want to get in touch with me you can send me a message on my instagram which is just at serene again so g-u-e-n um, at um, on insta or wherever awesome well it's been fantastic speaking with you today thank you so much for your time it's been great oh, thank you thanks thanks for listening I hope this podcast can intrigue, inspire, and provide some key tips and tricks for a lot of people. I would really appreciate your help to grow the community. If you know anyone that you think would enjoy this podcast, then please send it their way. And if you can subscribe and leave a review, it would mean so much and it really supports the show. Thank you and see you next week.